Well, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. It's extremely hot in here, and so if you just need to lower your mask a little bit to breathe better, um, feel free to do that. You're not going to be speaking anymore. You're just going to be listening, and you're not moving, so I'm not too concerned about that. So feel free if you just need to lower your mask to breathe, because it is hot. Let me read for us Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Let's pray. Father, as we look to your word now, we ask that by your spirit, you would speak truth to our hearts. Give us clarity in our understanding. Give us endurance, Lord, as it's very hot in here. We ask for your grace, and we pray, Lord, that by your Spirit and through the preaching of your word, you would accomplish your purposes here this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When I was in high school, I often got into several heated discussions with classmates and teachers over Christianity, the Bible, who God is, other religions. 
And I remember I was in a, a heated discussion once with a, a classmate who was Muslim, and I can't even fully remember all that we were discussing, but one of the things he was trying to convince me of was that Islam was, was morally superior to that of Christianity. And the reason he thought that and the reason he argued that was because he said that Christianity permit, permits people to drink alcohol and to eat pork. Whereas Islam is, is so much more morally superior because, because that's forbidden. You can't drink alcohol and you can't eat pork. So that was his argument to me for why Islam was morally superior. Now I'm guessing he never read the Sermon on the Mount. Because even Muslim scholars have read the Sermon on the Mount and have said they have never seen such a high moral standard taught by any human other than Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. But here's what that classmate of mine was doing. He was reducing morality, he was reducing virtue and character to external observances of what you eat and what you drink. In other words, he, was, he, he completely saw morality and holiness through the lens of ritual purity. And to be honest with you, he's not much different than the Pharisees that we read about in Mark chapter 7. They were devoted to external observances to the traditions that they were handed down, that were handed down to them. They were devoted to moral external observances. As long as they did these outward rituals, then they were considered morally pure. And of course, in this story, Jesus has a lesson to teach them. Now, last week we saw that Jesus walked on the water. He came to his disciples on the water, calming the winds, the winds that were preventing his disciples from getting to the other side. And then Mark 6 ends with a summary of Jesus' healing in the area that they crossed over to. That whoever touched but the fringe of his garment were healed. And now in chapter 7 we get a scene change. The narrative shifts. It's no longer a focus on the miracles of Jesus. It now becomes an encounter with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the scribes. And so the Pharisees and the, some of the scribes, they come to him. They're gathered to him, as verse 1 tells us, that they were also from Jerusalem. Now, most likely, they were the same religious leaders who came down from Jerusalem in chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. The ones who accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of demons. These men, here in chapter 7, are not seekers of Jesus. They're opponents, and they're looking for opportunity to undermine Jesus and his ministry, to show him to be a fraud. They want to challenge his authority and his ways. And here in Mark 7, an opportunity presents itself. We read in verse 2 that they observed that some of Jesus' disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And of course, this was contrary to the tradition of the elders, as we read in verse 3 to 4. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. 
Now, what's really important for us to see is that the disciples not washing their hands wasn't contrary to the scriptures, but it was contrary to the tradition of the elders. There was nothing in the Old Testament that required an Israelite to wash their hands before eating in order to be ceremonially unclean. There are only two examples in the Old Testament that requires hand washing. Exodus 30, 19 and Exodus 40, 12. And that hand washing was a requirement for the priests when they served in the tabernacle. But there is no other commandment in the Old Testament that requires that you wash your hands before you eat in order to be considered ceremonially clean. So what is the tradition of the elders then? Because that's what they're alluding to. They're saying they're not, they're not washing their hands according to the tradition of the elders. Well, it was the oral law. The oral law was handed down by the religious leaders and it developed into the document that we call the Mishnah. The oral tradition was handed down by the religious leaders through the centuries and it primarily focused on ceremonial cleanliness. There were hundreds of these laws. And the purpose of these oral laws was to safeguard and protect the religious from disobeying God's law. It was almost used like, like a fence or a boundary. In some sense... The intentions were good. They really wanted to be faithful to God's commands and what it meant to be holy. But it became deeply misguided. Over time, the focus on holiness was fundamentally external. It became all about observing ritual purity. And no longer was it about love for God and love for neighbor and holiness toward God. It became legalistic and enslaving. Now, what do I mean by legalistic? Well, I think there's two ways to define legalistic. The first way of thinking of legalism is you're striving to keep God's commands in order to be made right with God. It's a form of works righteousness. That's a form of legalism. If you do these things, God then will accept you. That's one form of legalism. The other form, which I think we as Christians are often prone to, is that we end up adding our own commands on top of the commands that God has already given. In, other, in a sense, we, we, we fill the silence in the scriptures where, where we don't really have clarity. We, we want to add things. And so we, we place commands upon people and we bind people with those commands even though God doesn't. That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing here. So these relig religious leaders, they're, they're devoted to these traditions. And they believed any real God-fearing Jew would be as well. Well, you can imagine what Jesus thought of this. Jesus wasn't bound by their oral tradition. In fact, he confronts it. And because of this, these religious leaders are appalled and they're offended by Jesus. Jesus has no regard for their tradition. And so they come to Jesus and ask him a question in verse 5, where they say to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now on the surface, it seems like an innocent question. But remember, these are the same men 
who accused Jesus of having the demonic. This isn't an innocent question. They have a self-righteous moral superiority that is driving this question. They want to show themselves morally superior to Jesus and his disciples. And I think the harshness of Jesus' response is evidence to the self-righteous motives that these men have. How does Jesus respond? Look at verse 6 and 7. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the doctrines, the commandments of men. You know, it's interesting that often when Jesus is asked a question by his opponents, he will often respond to them with a question. But he doesn't do that here. He goes on the offensive and makes a harsh judgment on these men. He outright calls them hypocrites. And then quotes from Isaiah 29, 13, which Bev read for us, contending that Isaiah prophesied about their hypocrisy. And what is the nature of their hypocrisy? They verbally honor God, but their hearts are nowhere to be seen. They worship God externally with their lips, with their practices, with their traditions, but internally their hearts have no regard for God. They worship Him in vain because they give Him mere lip service. But not only that, Jesus, quoting Isaiah 29, says, They teach as doctrines the commandments of men. That is, they've elevated the commandments of men to that of doctrine itself, the revealed will of God and His commands. It's as though the commandments and traditions of men are now on par with the commands of God. And Jesus will have no part in this. Now, I think there are two warnings here for us as Christians. The first is simply this. It's possible to merely give God lip service while our hearts are far from Him. It's possible to worship God in vain because our hearts are not actually engaged in the adoration of God. We can go through the motions. We can externally look like, a, like we're a holy people devoted to Jesus, yet internally Jesus can't be found. We're dedicated to external observances while our hearts have no regard for the one we claim to worship. Might that describe you? The other warning from this, these verses in verses 1 through 7, is that we can, as Christians, sometimes without realizing it, elevate our traditions to the same level as God's commands. I know in my parents' generation, it was often told that if you drank, or if you went to the movies, or if you danced, you were sinning. Though you can't find a single verse in the Bible that would say such a thing. And in so doing, when we do that kind of thing, we become legalistic like Pharisees. We become oppressive to others. You see, we as Christians don't have an oral tradition like the Jews that, that we subscribe to. But, but nevertheless, every church has tradition in it, which is a good thing. But it's so easy for us 
to no longer differentiate between what is tradition and what is God's clear command. For example, let's just take our Sunday morning services. In our services, when we gather, we have elements that are God's clear commands and also certain historical traditions that we do. So here are some of the things we do that are commanded by God. For example, we are committed to the public reading of Scripture. In 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul commands Timothy, commit yourself to the public reading of Scripture. That is why every single Sunday we meet, there is always a portion in our service where someone will stand before a mic and will read a large portion of Scripture. Sometimes there will be two Scripture readings. Another thing that God commands, of course, is the preaching of His Word. If you have a service where the preaching of God's word does not happen, I don't really know if that's considered a Christian worship service. Also, we are commanded to confess our sins. That's why in our services we intentionally have corporate confessions where we all together participate in confessing our sins, usually in line with the theme that is being preached on. Not only that, we are also commanded to take Holy Communion. We are commanded to sing. Colossians 3.16 says, Sing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We are also commanded to pray. That's why in our services, we are always doing those things. But here are some things that we do as a church that are tied to a historical tradition. So for example, when we do the scripture reading, as Bev did this morning... She got up, read the scriptures, and then she said, this is the word of the Lord, and you responded by saying, thanks be to God. Now, the reason we do that is not because the scriptures command us to do that. The reason we do that is because there's a historical tradition to that saying that goes back hundreds of years where, where it was important for the church. And I think it's a, it's, a, it's a valuable tradition because it reminds us that when someone gets up to read the scriptures, it's not just someone reading out of the book. When they say this is the word of the Lord, it's a reminder to us that God has just spoken through his word to us. See, the the only element in our Sunday morning services that that are not tainted with any kind of falsehood is the reading of scripture. When I preach, there are probably things that are contrary to the word of God because I'm fallible. But when the scriptures are read, it's as if God is speaking to us. And so that's why we we take that tradition and we value that tradition and we say this is the word of the Lord and the only proper response to when you hear God speak is thanks be to God. That's why we do that. Now, if all of the members of Royal York decided one Sunday to rebel against me and said, Peter, we no longer want that tradition, I would give you many reasons for why I think we should keep it. But I wouldn't die on that hill. Because it's just a tradition. But if you said to me, Peter, we want you to no longer have portions in our service that are committed to long portions of the reading of God's word. Because we want to be relevant and unbelievers can't handle sitting still for that long. Well, I would die on that hill. You would have to fire me in order for you to fulfill that purpose. Why? Because God commands that we read the scriptures in our services. Or another tradition, the pastoral prayer. Prayer is commanded by God, but the pastoral prayer is 
a tradition. It's a wonderful tradition. It's, it's to have one of your pastors, one of your elders, to pray on behalf of the church. But we ought not be bound by it. And that's why some of our services, we have a, a congregational prayer where we will all participate in a prayer together instead of a pastoral prayer. Or, for example, we did the reading of the creed this morning, the Apostles' Creed. We try to proclaim the Apostles' Creed once a month, not because we have to, but because the church historically has always done this, and it's tied to our history. It connects us back to Christians who were living in the second and third century. And so I think it's a wonderful thing for us to do, but God doesn't command us to do it. You see, these are all wonderful traditions, and to be honest with you, it saddens me to see so many evangelical churches disconnected from the historical traditions of the church. But we mustn't ever allow these traditions to be on par with the clear commands of God. See, if I'm honest with you, my, my wider concern for evangelical Christians today isn't an overemphasis on tradition at the, or at the expense of God's commands. Rather, my concern is, is that there's a complete abandonment of tradition and even a disregard for God's commands in order to be relevant. It's possible to go to church today and never corporately confess your sins. It's possible to go to church today and rarely, rarely hear large portions of Scripture read. It's possible to go to church today and never hear an ancient hymn of any kind. It's possible to go to church today and honestly only have prayer as a filler. These short 30-second prayers that are, that are empty and void of any depth. There's, there's never really any moment just given to prayer where the people of God need to, to sit still and calm their minds and focus and hear someone pray on their behalf. There's a shallowness, a superficiality, an emptiness, a meaninglessness that seems to pervade a lot of evangelical Christianity. And, and I don't want that for us. I want our services to be robust, intellectually stimulating, stirring the heart towards affections, towards Christ, a richness and a depth to what we do. Evangelical churches have abandoned so much of our history in order to be relevant, and it's deeply saddening to me. And often we build that kind of practice off of passage like Mark 7. We think, ah, oh, Jesus was against tradition. No, no. Jesus wasn't against tradition. Jesus doesn't condemn tradition. He condemns a certain attitude toward tradition. In fact, it's impossible as humans to not be about tradition. We don't get rid of tradition when we decide to do something else. We rather replace that tradition with a new form of tradition. We're all inherently traditional people. We can't avoid that. We all have rituals. See, the question isn't whether tradition is good or bad. The question is whether your tradition is any good or bad. See, Jesus doesn't confront them on their tradition. He confronts them on elevating their tradition to the commands of God. He confronts them on their hypocrisy and treating their traditions as though God had spoken those traditions. 
But Jesus doesn't end there in his rebuke. He actually goes further. Jesus rebukes them not just for for that, but, but for actually abandoning God's commands in order to hold to their tradition. Look at verses 8 to 9. You leave, that's what key, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So so you're not only elevating your traditions to the commands of God, but you're in fact leaving and rejecting the commands of God to establish and hold to your tradition. In their commitment to their tradition, they've abandoned God's commands completely. And in verse 10 to 13, Jesus gives them an illustration of their rejecting the commands of God to hold to their own tradition. This is what he says. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained for me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit, permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So Jesus uses the fifth commandment in the Ten, ten Commandments, honor your father and mother, and he, he uses it in both the negative and the positive, right? Exodus 22, honor your father and mother. Exodus 21 to 17, a child who reviles their parents should be put to death. Now, in the latter, he's talking about a child. He's not talking about a five-year-old child. He's talking about a child who has grown up, who basically curses their parents and has no regard for them. Now, I'm not going to get into why God permits that. But this is a clear command of God revealed in the scriptures. But Jesus says to them, but you say, that is, you say something contrary to what God commands. You say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from, from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. In other words, scribal tradition allowed for a child to get around responsibility of caring for their parents in their older age. By basically claiming to be so spiritual that your possessions would be Corbin, given to God as a gift, rather than using your possessions to care for your family. Not only that, but if a son made this vow, that is, this Corbin, this gift to God, in rashes, let's say he got in an argument with his father, and he said, Father, all my possessions are to God now, Corbin. And let's say he wanted to take it back later because he realized he made a mistake. The scribes would tell him that his keeping of the vow is more important than honoring his parents. And so what Jesus, what, so what does Jesus say is the result of this kind of practice that they were promoting? Well, look at verse 12 and 13 again. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. And here it is. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition. They made void the word of God. You have to understand how offensive this would have been for Jesus to say to them. The scribes and the Pharisees legit believed that the oral tradition was on par with the word of God. And Jesus merely calls it the traditions of men. And he merely calls it your tradition. You make, the vo- uh, you make void the word of God by your tradition. 
They have actually rejected the word of God in doing this. See, they believe themselves to be so religious, so spiritual, so devoted to God because of the multitude of traditions that they abide by. And Jesus is declaring to them, you're hypocrites because in your religiosity, you've abandoned and forsaken God's word for your own traditions. You know, I've seen churches split over very trivial things like traditions. And in their splitting, they disregarded the command to be unified in the gospel. Because they're more committed to their tradition than they are to unity in Christ. So Jesus confronts these men over their self-righteous hypocrisy, their vain worship, He confronts them over their wrong thinking when it comes to tradition. And now in verses 14 to 23, Jesus really gets to the heart of the issue. But here, he doesn't just speak to the Pharisees. He calls all the people to him again, and he seeks to explain the heart of the issue. Remember, the religious leaders were primarily concerned about ceremonially cleanliness, They saw the disciples eating without washing their hands, which was was a direct violation of the oral tradition given to them. And so here in verse 14 to 23, Jesus demonstrates that defilement isn't about external washings or certain foods that are eaten or not eaten. Defilement is ultimately an internal reality, which was completely neglected by these religious leaders. They looked spiritually good externally, but inwardly they were whitewashed tombs. And so look at verses 14 to 23. And he called the people to him again and said to him, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So Jesus gathers all the people and declares boldly in verse 15 that there's nothing outside that goes into a person that can defile him. Rather, it's, it's the thing that comes out of a person that defiles him. Now this would have been utterly shocking to the Jews, even confusing. And you, you see this based upon even his disciples' response after he leaves the crowd and enters the house, right? In verse uh, 17 we read, and, what he had, and, and when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. That is, they didn't fully get it. But here's the thing. This wasn't a parable. This was just very clear. Jesus was saying that nothing that goes into a person makes them unclean. It's what comes out of a person that makes them unclean. But they were so deeply influenced by Jewish thought at that time that they also didn't understand. And so Jesus questions them almost with a rebuke. And then he gives further explanation to his statement that he made in verse 15, where he says in verse 18 to 23, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. 
So Jesus conveys to his disciples that whatever goes into a man cannot defile him. Why? Because Jesus says that whatever enters a man, it doesn't enter his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. And then Mark adds this commentary, thus he declared all foods clean. See, under the old covenant, there were clean and unclean foods. But under the new covenant, Jesus fulfills the old covenant and demonstrates that all those laws were pointing to a deeper reality, namely the purity of the heart. Now, I don't have time this morning to unpack how all this is connected. But the point that Jesus wants to make to his disciples is that cleanliness, purity, isn't fundamentally about what you eat or what you drink. Rather, it's a matter of the heart. It's not that which comes from outside, but that which comes from within, as he says in verse 20 to 21. And what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. See, the Pharisees and religious leaders thought the main issue was external. As long as you abide by these rituals, you're good. But Jesus flips it all upside down, or you could say right side up. All the ceremonial laws were meant to point Israel to a deeper reality, that their hearts needed to be purified and cleansed and transformed. Because it's from within the heart of man that sin manifests. The heart, according to the scriptures, is is the center of a person which, which directs a person's thoughts, actions, and desires. And out of the heart comes all these different immoralities, according to Jesus, evil thoughts which is what births evil actions like sexual immorality, all forms of sexual sin, theft, murder, adultery, coveting. That is an appetite for what belongs to others. You see that right now, very prevalent in the younger university generation. They think the rich can't be rich, and the only reason they're rich is because of oppression. They want what the rich has. That's a form of coveting. Wickedness, that is malice, a a desire to inflict evil on others. Deceit, sensuality, that is a form of lewdness, moral debauchery. Envy, that is a form of jealousy, similar to that of coveting. Slander, that is blasphemy. One can slander God's name or slander other people's names. Pride, of course, the great sin of all. Arrogance in oneself. Foolishness describes a person who is morally and spiritually deficient. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. See, Jesus says all these things come from within. They reside in our hearts. See, Jesus here is teaching the doctrine of human sin, the doctrine of depravity. This is the true problem that humans face. That there is a disease residing in the heart of every human. A disease that is impossible to cure by human means. See, this truth challenges almost every philosophy and every religious worldview, every modern philosophy today. The religious leaders thought that they could be holy and pure by mere external observance. 
But Jesus demonstrates that external observance and ceremonial washings have no power in getting to the root of the issue. Many today argue that humanity's problem is their environment. If you change their environment, then they will become morally virtuous people. In other words, the reason why one does the immoral things that he does is because of poverty, lack of education, the systems and structures of our institutions. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. The issue is the human heart. It's evil, it's fallen, it's in rebellion and hostility toward the things of God. You see, you can remove a man from his poverty, but you can't remove sin from his heart. And yes, removing him from poverty might keep him from practicing certain kinds of sins, but placing him in prosperity will only breed other kinds of sins. It is true that your environment can allow for certain kinds of sins to more easily manifest. But it's not the environment that causes these manifestations. Rather, the environment has provided the opportunity for these internal sins to rear their ugly heads. You see, kids, your brother or your sister didn't make you do anything. When you get in a fight with your brother or your sister and you make fun of them or you hit them, they did not make you do anything. You cannot go to mom and say, she made me do it. When you hit your brother or your sister or when you make fun of them, it was because within you resides a sinful, deviled, defiled, evil heart that needs to be cleansed and transformed by Jesus. There is never a moment where you can truthfully say, he made me do it or she made me do it. No, no, you chose to do it because your heart was inclined to do it. You see, if the problem was external, then we could look inwardly for the solution, which is what many people try to do today. But if the problem is internal, then we must look outside of ourselves in order to find true cleansing and healing. You see, the problem with each of us is not external uncleanliness, but internal uncleanliness. And this explanation of Jesus is universal. It's not true of only a few people. The stain of sin resides in all of us. We all need to be purified. And this is the reason why Jesus came. He came to die for our sins and to take a sinful people and transform them into a holy, purified people. You see, if the problem was only external defilement, then there would be no need for a Savior to come and die for our sins. All you would need to do is have a shower. But it was necessary for Jesus to come and die for our sins because our problem was far greater than external defilement. Our problem was the sinfulness of our hearts that put us under God's righteous judgment, his righteous indignation. You see, you know what this truth ought to do? Is it ought to completely humble each of us. There's no room in the kingdom of Jesus for moral superiority and self-righteousness. 
For none of us have the power to make our hearts morally good and pure. There is only one power, and that's the power of Jesus Christ through the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. See, we don't just need heart modification. We need heart transformation. We need a heart transplant. And the cross of Jesus truly reveals to us, yes, the love of God. But it also reveals to us the depravity of our own hearts and our need for salvation. And here's the incredible thing about about Jesus' transforming power. He takes people with evil thoughts and gives them desires for pure thoughts. He takes liars and turns them into lovers of truth and proclaimers of truth. He takes the sexually immoral and causes them to desire moral purity and self-control. He takes thieves and turns them into the most charitable people like Zacchaeus. He takes people who are prejudiced towards people of other ethnicities and he then sends them as missionaries to reach a completely different ethnicity. This is exactly what he did with the Apostle Paul. Paul would have hated the Gentiles. And God saved him, transformed him, and then sent him to reach the Gentiles. He takes murderers and causes them to value life, and they become proclaimers of resurrection life. He takes coveters and transforms them into contented people who find their contentment in Christ. He takes the proud and transforms them into the humble. He takes fools and makes them wise. Friend, your religious observances, your moral practices will not save you nor transform your unclean heart. You need the washing of God, the washing of regeneration that only God can give. As my one former pastor in Ottawa said, you Christians are brainwashed. Yes, we are. We need our brains washed. He's the only one who can purify our defiled minds and our defiled hearts. You see, the Christian message is quite radical. It tells us we need to be born again. It tells us we need to be regenerated. It tells us we need to be purified and resurrected. In other words, in order to be resurrected, we have to die. We must die first in order to become a new creation. And Jesus alone is the only one who has the power to turn you into a new creation. And so this morning... I plead with each of us, don't be like the Pharisees, devoted to external morality that will only condemn you before God, but be like the tax collector who cried out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's pray. Father, forgive us, Lord, for at times taking on the spirit of the Pharisees, merely giving lip service to you, merely being concerned about external obedience while our hearts are far from you. Lord, ignite in us a longing, a hunger, a thirst for Jesus and his righteousness. Cleanse us, Lord, from all of our sins. Lord, may there never be self-righteousness and moral superiority in our hearts. May we remember that before the cross, we are all equal, and we are all in desperate need of grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.